Welcome to Late Night Disclosure, a Fund Apps podcast series for compliance professionals where we discuss industry pain points and insights. I am your host, Kevin Raj Bhatia. I am the head of content here at Fund Apps, and joining me today is Rebecca Clayton from Aosphere. Hi. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. So the topic for today's podcast is sensitive industries. I thought we'd we'd give a quick overview of you know what sensitive industries is. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the the trends that are happening in the field, and we'll do our best to sort of talk about the practical application of sensitive industries rules to holders of assets. Great. So you know just just off the bat, um, I think it's a good idea to talk about. You know, what do we mean when we say sensitive industries and sensitive industry limits? That's a great question. Um, sensitive industries and sensitive industries limits um, is actually quite a broad concept. Um, I tend to think of it myself in terms of three different types of regime. One is FDI, foreign direct investment, which is clearly a hot topic at the moment for, um, for people. Um, another sector of, of regime, another regime that, that lays underneath um, FDI is uh, industry by industry regulation, and another is aggregate limits. And so I'll kind of explain what I mean by each of those. So FDI means foreign direct investment. This tends to be quite a national centralized regime um, where you'll have a government department sitting somewhere with an oversight of industries that are critical um, to security and policy and they're a national priority. Then you have the industry by industry type of regulation that I was talking about. And that tends to be governed by an industry regulator, so a specific regulator who's in charge of that industry. And that actually, those types of industry limits are as opposed to FDI, which you know, as its name suggests is actually concentrated on foreign actors, industry by industry um, limits can either apply to foreign actors or they may also encompass domestic uh, investors as well. And that's slightly to do with the kind of nature of why those things are being regulated. For example, um, banking and finance, you know, that's often excluded from FDI as a bracket of critical infrastru infrastructure with central oversight um, would come under industry specific regulation. And quite often that implicates domestic investors as well as um, foreign investors. And then you have aggregate limits as well. And so what I mean by aggregate limits is basically instead of one particular investor or an investor and its uh, associated parties, if aggregation comes into play, instead of that one particular investor, what you're looking at is actually the concept of foreign investors as a whole brought into a bucket of foreign investors. And there would be, there would be a limit that would um, stop further foreign investment, which is usually around that kind of major majority threshold around 49%. But what that's interested in is actually taking the whole of foreign investors, regardless of whether they're related to each other in any way, just independent foreign investors all coming together under an aggregate limit. And that, again, is another type of regime. So you do need to know that there are three different types of regimes. That's interesting. And I think, um, you know, when, when we talk about sensitive industries, even at, here at FundApps, um, I think sort of the, the disconnect we get um, People are focused on the fact that, you know, it's not centralized by, mm. by, you know, all the different countries, right? Every country has their own mm -hmm. set of regimes. But I think uh, what you sort of highlight there when you, when you really break down the different types of regimes is that even within a country, it can be very different when you're looking at across these three types. Um, so I think that's something that, that 
people don't sort of think about when they think about, you know, how to monitor for these things or how to even comply with some of these rules. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what people really need to remember is that also, for example, in a place where you may have, you know, an FDI rule, just because you haven't, you've complied with an FDI rule doesn't mean that you don't have to look at all of the industry specific rules that sit there as well, and also comply with them separately because they're separate acts of legislation, you know, they're separate legislation points you have different compliance actions, you're going to be screened, ask for approval, notify whatever the compliance action is that goes with it to different people for a different purpose. They are just separate laws and you need to abide by all of these regimes. You need to know about all of them. And if you think of somewhere like South Korea, utilities is one of its protected industries. And they've got five different types of industry regulation, depending on kind of the sub-industry that's implicated. But they've also got this overriding restriction on FDI as well. So, you, you know, you really have to look at each country of its own volition, because whilst there may be trends that you, know, you can't follow that, you have to follow a country by country law. And then you have to look into the industry. And it may be also that you have to look into a sub-industry as well. So actually, they can be quite complex and overlayered. Yeah, and I, I do want to talk about um, sort of the, the specifics and practical aspects but before we get to that, I just wanted to, to see if you had any insight into, uh, I'll, I'll start with sort of the origin of this type of regulation, but what I, I really think is interesting is sort of the prevailing trends over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the origin of the regulations, they, they're actually, again, slightly different depending on which regime we're talking about. So FDI that's generally a a political concern. Um, It often stems from these political concerns. It concentrates on foreign actors. Um, It protects a nation and a nation's assets, um, which you can obviously see as a a political concern. And often the intention of the actor is a factor where it comes to screening, but it's a changing beast because actually political concerns change over time as well. So traditionally FDI was more of kind of an M&A takeovers, point in time type of review, you've got to these quite like huge type of holdings, and that's when we'll do the review to see whether or not your transaction will be able to be passed. Um, but actually, what we've seen is a kind of move away from that. Um, and actually, what FDI has done is it's gone into this more kind of continual review spectrum. And so um, more transactions are within scopes, you know, um, you'll, you'll know about the, the US um, CFIUS as that's included purchases and um, leases of real estate that are in close proximity to military installations, you know, so like, you know, the acquisition of uh, land and uh, military is implicated, or Finland has also, it's included in its review mechanisms, um, specific review uh, mechanisms to be able to look at acquisitions of real estate. Um, So even in terms of transactions, transactions that are reviewable are, are particularly broad in FDI, we're also seeing that as FDI has kind of evolved over time, it would have moved away from those types of industries that are more traditionally FDI, which are you know, things like defense and security, to this broader concept of critical infrastructure, which basically means any uh, type of industry which is essential to the um, infrastructure of your country, which varies between countries. I mean, what is critical to one country might not be critical to another. So this uh, sense of you know critical infrastructure to this kind of evolution into more modern types of industry. So you might be talking about encryption, or you might be talking about you know personal data, because obviously uh, personal data is a, a much huger thing now than it previously was. So FDI, you can see its evolution. It, it kind of it, you know sure. it, it evolves in respect of what is going on in terms of law and politics, and it, and it tends to be a very very wide 
kind of you know, a broad brush type of, uh, of set of rules. Whereas industry rules, they might have different reasons for their existence. Uh, so you know, qualifying holdings in the EU, actually what that's doing is it's checking the suitability of investors for, um, for the influence that they would have in basically what is systemically important financial institutions. So it's the suitability of investors and also checks you know, things like money laundering as well in the background or Australia's media, that's protecting the influence of media companies on public dialogue and public discourse. So background, again, you know, can be quite different. The motivation behind it is quite different. Or if you're talking about aggregation, often aggregation limits exist because they're tied to, in some way, the licensing of the particular um, company that is implicated. It sets of thresholds that I was talking about earlier. So if you think about something like EU aviation, it's tied to the licensing of EU aviation carriers. So they have different reasons for their existence. And this is, you know, the origins of them. Um, but they have, you know, so th these things have been around for, for quite a long time, um, but they, you know, as with all laws, they evolve and they change over time. Yeah, and I, I wonder, uh, uh, just in general, if there's been any trends in sort of in reactionary, uh, you know, governments and government thinking in that sense that, okay, you know, maybe someone in the EU does something and, and now, you know, other countries, not necessarily to retaliate, but it just becomes sort of a trend. If, if one country is doing media, maybe some other countries sort of react in that way. Has that, has that sort of happened or has there been any trends in that way? There are trends that we've seen in terms of sensitive industry regulations in the EU. I mean, what I would say about the EU is that in terms of these protectionisms of industries, um, it's 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 at a national level, and you can see that actually, uh, even when you try to compare things like FDI regimes between the EU, that they will cover different industries. You know, sure. each government will be able to look at its own needs and its own requirements. But there has been a move in the EU. Um, there was a couple of years ago that the EU regulation um, on uh, on foreign investment um, came into play. And, uh, and was released and it took effect last October. What that is, is actually it's a cooperation and information sharing mechanism. So it doesn't implement an FDI regime in any uh, strict sense for any country. It doesn't tell you that you have to do this, but it, it requires member states to share information about foreign actors so that they have information on an uh, EU member states level. And so what we saw as a result of, of that was actually that some countries who had long-standing FDI regimes already would look at their FDI regimes and maybe start to hone them a little, maybe try and sensitize them. And some countries would think, actually, we think that we this is the right time for us to now implement a, uh, an FDI structure that they might not previously have had. So whilst the EU regulation didn't impose any particular structure, it was the a kind of trigger point for countries to look and think, you know, is this something that's necessary for us? But the way in which it manifests in the EU is different between different countries. I'm just thinking, like, for us, it's it's been... It's been very important um, to our clients for the last few years. I would say the last two or three years, we've had strong demand from clients, um, not seemingly out of nowhere, but but like you said, these regulations in some form have evolved over time. Um, what would you say, you know, is sort of driving sort of the recent trends? I, and I would say, and I'll, I'll sort of answer my question first, <laughs> but I think that, you know, from our, our clients, which are, are large asset holders, um, really what's what's sort of driving their interest is is the lowering of thresholds i think that 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 is sort of the big 
key for them. Um, mm -hmm. Also sort of diversification of assets. Um, you know, now if you're a large asset holder, it's, it's more likely you're, you're investing in diversified areas, you know, globally yeah. versus, you know, single minded individuals or countries. Is that sort of what you're seeing or, or is there just more clarity? Have there been more fines? Like what is making a you know, people more aware of these things? Well, out of the EU, people will behave more aware of these things, I think, as we just discussed about the, the EU um, regulation. Sure. But actually, um, and also, as you, you know, as you pointed out, you know, some of these things have been around for quite a long time. Um, what is driving changes in, in terms of the law um, depends on the requirements of the national regulator. I mean, if we think about something like Japan and we think about their FEFTA changes, um, that again, another country that had a, a long-standing FDI regime, um, and as you'll remember, you know it um, it dropped its kind of opening threshold right down to one percent. And what it was clearly interested in was um, making sure that um, people didn't um, interfere in the management of companies without having been appropriately screened. Um, so, you know, that's quite, it's, it's quite an interesting motivation. Well, we've seen there that, that, um, that countries have dropped their thresholds from these kind of higher M&A type of, you know, um, they're, they're dropping them down to, like you said, something more like, like 10%. So 10% yeah. isn't an uncommon threshold for FDI, not at all. In fact, it, it is quite common. We, if we see FDI, if I think about an FDI bracket, I would think it would be somewhere between 10 and 25%. There are outliers for sure um, at either side. Um, you know, Canada's 33%, Japan actually starts at 1%, but I think of them as somewhere between 10 and 25%, and 10 isn't unusual. And you can see that people would become concerned by that because actually 10 percent it, it sounds quite large but actually if really what you're intending to do is to try not to be implicated in pre-approval processes or, or you know in the screening processes themselves you'd have to try to set your compliance triggers with with some particular caution conservatively quite far away from that 10 percent so you know people actually they wouldn't necessarily be looking at trying to avoid 9.5%, you know, to give themselves a clear, um, a clear conservative buffer, they might be looking at much before that. So in fact, the way that investors would treat these triggers, it might be that they sensitize them themselves to help themselves with their own compliance actions. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good sort of transition into into the next topic, which is the the practical application um, for, for asset holders. And I think you really hit it there because when the thresholds get lowered, you, you start to see asset holders who, who might not have been sort of, you know, you might have had a, a focused asset manager who knows that, okay, I'm going to have to do some, you know, pre-trade requirement or like an M&A mm -hmm. deal where you know, okay, I'm going to have to get approval for this. Um, but when you start lowering thresholds, you now capture these asset managers who don't even want to come near this stuff. Yeah, you know? uh, and I think that's sort of the prevailing thing we see, uh, you know, amongst our clients is, is, you know, they're in the business of, of whatever they do, either, either, you know, hedge funds, insurance companies and, and pension funds and things like that. And they don't want to be involved in trying yeah. to get a, a pre-approval uh, for, for owning a mining company in Australia or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just in general, I know we said that, that, you know, it varies by country and industry, but there are any, any common points uh, when it comes to monitoring for these types of things? Well, <laughs> that depends on the regime as well. Um, I think that the only the only one thing that I would kind of say up front about 
trends is that they're very useful to look at um, you know the the global or perhaps a regional aspect and think oh let's keep an eye out for this something might be coming our way but as with all law you always have to go back to the particular nation and the particular rules and we've already said you know something like South Korea you've got utilities five different sub industries one over um, arching FDI type of regulation and so you obviously have to look back at the specific rules that apply and so um, so it can be so what actually might what might implicate an investor what might mean that an investor is in scope will vary between national rules as well so you think sure. of something like the eu and that actually is quite a tricky concept because what does it mean to be a foreign investor in the eu does it mean that you're non-eu does it mean you're non-efta does it mean you're um non German does it you know what what does it mean and these things can be quite different so Poland for example recently temporary notification and clearance requirement was introduced um, and this was in connection with the pandemic um, and it covered non-EU non-EA and OECD investors so that's a, a slightly different take to the way that other EU countries would define you know the concept yeah. of, of, um, of foreign investor Oh, we look at Germany. Germany's just, you know, kind of revised its um, its rules again, and um, and it has different categories of FDI. So when Germany is looking at um, its kind of most sensitive, most critical um, category one section of FDI, for example, defence and encryption, it's talking about non-German investors. But in cross in other sectors of German FDI, it's talking about non-EU and non-EFTA. That's within a country, within a regime. Yeah. So you can see that you know. Um, what what applies is going to be different within different rules and different um, nationalities. And so, you, despite the huge complexity of it, and I, I have such a lot of sympathy for for people trying to track it, that um, despite the huge complexity of it, you, you have to keep going back into the rules as they apply to a particular country and a particular regime and a, possibly a particular sub industry. Because even in Germany's FDI, you've got sub industry categories here defense and encryption are particularly high others um, might have a different set of rules that apply to them yeah and i think that's that that sort of goes with the challenges and and especially as a as a provider as as mm. you know fund apps who's trying to trying to automate a lot of this um you know we get questions all the time it's like you know do you cover germany and it's it's such a it's such a broad question depending on the the regulation and the industry and and how the client yeah. is situated um it, it's tough to it's tough to do it's tough to monitor uh you know in a blanket way um you know we do our best and and thankfully we have some guidance from from aosphere you can only go as specific as you can with a blanket search without having you know the exact fact pattern um to make like a an ultimate determination um, yeah. which is something you know we try to help our clients with um just just shifting to to you know the regulations that require a look at specific industries um you know one of the 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 biggest problems and sort of the problem we started with was how to determine you know what issuers are in scope and basically being able to do sort of securities binding so if you're trading a bunch of publicly traded securities how do we know what issuers um are, are in these specific industries um have you seen anything in terms of industry standard definitions or identifiers or anything like that um it i would say from um from the start that governments, especially when you're talking about something like FDI, um, where they're keeping a kind of broad brush approach deliberately in the legislation so that they can um, kind of keep their hand in and, overview and, uh, and oversee various transactions. The governments aren't 
generally particularly minded to help people datafy the legislation. Yes. Um, it's quite and it's quite difficult. And I think you know we'll go back to Japan again because actually Japan's FTI is just incredibly interesting, but stands as a bit of an outlier to the rest of the world. So Japan produced its um, its list in its recent FTI overhaul. What Japan used to have was some type of industry identifier. Um, codes that um, that it would link up to particular businesses that were um, defined in uh, different categories of its FDI. Um, but um, with our feedback conversations with our council, we found that actually that, that it was still quite difficult for investors to be able to, um, to use these codes because you know, how far do you go with an issuer? How, what do you need to apply to primary industries, secondary industries, you know, cross-sectoral interests, all of that kind of thing? And it was very, very difficult for, and, it, and it is very, very difficult for people to be able to decide, decide whether an issuer is in scope or not in scope. So Japan recently had actually produced a list to go with its um, its FDI overhaul, which is incredibly useful. Um, but I can't see other governments being minded to do it. But it was incredibly useful, um, and it identified um, issuers by name, and and so that is great. I mean, that's like that's like a pure sure. data win, isn't it? Um, yeah. it For us, it's, it's huge, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to, to match, match to real <laughs> securities identifiers. Yeah, it would be, it'd be absolutely brilliant. But like, if you if you look at the uh, like what happened for the government to be able to, for the government to be able to get those, um, those issuers in scope and categorize them in the way that they did, had to go out and conduct quite a lot of surveys with the issuers that were in scope to see what the scope of their businesses were. Yep. And also look at their articles of association and that kind of thing. And as our council pointed out to us at one point that um, hot springs were, <laughs> yeah. were identified as a core business, but for no, you know, on the face of it, without having done the, done those huge kind of investigations behind the scene, on the face of it, prima facie, why would hot springs be, you know, and, and it, this kind of thing makes you think just as you very well know how difficult it is if you're not getting a steer from government, how on earth do you do, you do these things? Um, and industry specific regimes, they might be in some ways slightly easier if you're talking about something like a licensed or a regulated set of issuers and sure. if the government produces if it's for example banking and finance and the government says hey you know these are regulated financial institutions but what the government's list as a list of financial institutions would do is that's just telling you who's regulated for the point of um, public transparency. That's not telling you who's regulated for the purposes of this law. So, you know, if some particular sub industries aren't implicated in this list, then you'd have to go back and you'd have to score them out. And um, you know, that's not the purpose of that list. Even though you do get some data in those types of industries, it's not the purpose of it. And, and with the exception of Japan, no government um, really you know, would give you a, a list of industries specifically for the purpose of this regulation, uh, of these regulations, any of the regimes. And it just makes it incredibly difficult on a practice. I think even, you know, uh, we found that even when, when you do have industry categories and industry lists, um, doing the examination, like you said, of the issuers themselves, um, you know, automakers who have financing arms, uh, who give mm -hmm. loans, uh, you know, conglomerates, there's a, a lot of the companies we're talking about that that are sort of traded in volume that that this can affect. Um, yeah. It's tough to it's tough to, you know, find out if, if they're in scope or not, you can you can be as broad as you want. And then if you have, a, you know, incorporated in one country with operations in another that has financing arms and, and you know, an automaker or something like that, that might might have you know, multiple um, types of industry codes. It's tough, you know, even just looking at 
revenues or, or business locations, it makes it much more difficult. And, and yeah. but in a way, it makes it easier to say like, all right, well, we just want to stay clear of this completely because <laughs> you don't, you, you might not want to even have to make that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just moving on to the calculations themselves. Are there any? I know I keep, you know, asking for for common ground here, but um, is it typically, you know, aggregation based on on voting rights, um, you know, economic interest? What are what are these rules typically looking at? So the test could be triggered on voting rights, or it could be triggered on triggered on share capital. And what I mean by test here is. Um, uh, an acquisition and ownership limit in terms of a threshold, because we've already spoken to the fact that actually some of these rules go way beyond that. And actually, you know, there are other types of fact-based and qualitative um, uh, scenarios that you might have to examine to see whether or not you have some control or influence that aren't designated onto, you know, a set threshold. Um, but when you're talking about thresholds, they, you know, they tend to attach to voting rights or um, share capital, or maybe both. Um, Again, you know, you have to look at the the uh, particular country that is in scope, um, and what we you know what we see with these types of rules is that as opposed to something like substantial shareholding, where actually you're cutting you're cutting across the you know you're, what you're talking about is market, and then you have all of your issuers that um, that are implicated on your market generally. Um, and um, and so you, instead of this kind of huge amount of issuers where you're maybe talking about you know five percent and the the laws are quite well developed and you have all these great calculation rules, it's not the case in FDI. It's not the case in FDI or even you know necessarily in the industry rules that sit underneath it. Um, so it's quite different to substantial shareholding in this sense because it doesn't have these kind of specific calculation rules. Um, and so. We do need to know about thresholds, and your, your um, our clients, your clients need. They, we do need to know about thresholds. We also need to understand that the scope can be wider, and at least be aware of this. Um, but then, when you come to looking at calculation rules themselves, they might actually be deliberately vague. Again, you know, so that the government doesn't, any particular government doesn't want to pin down specifically what is in scope, so it can you know, it can keep its um, it can keep its reach wider. Um, some rules do speak specifically to types of rules and that's why you have to go back yeah. in and you have to have a look at the rules so, you know south korea that, that talks about this concept especially related persons so you can see that there's an aggregation connection um austria's got some fdi rules um, and they talk about people acting in concert so again you can see that there is an and that they're alluding to aggregation in that sense but as our austrian council pointed out whilst there may be this uh, this implication of aggregation um there aren't other expressed calculation rules so there are some you know gray areas left around the constituent parts of the actual formula itself which is just really yeah. hard um and some you know some rules might talk about registered ownership which is in itself a, a, sim a more simple kind of concept um Australia, they have a concept of tracing that um, that can be quite difficult to to kind of follow without some specific guidance from somebody kind of looking through the rules. So the Broadcasting Services Act, so that's media, they're talking about tracing through different companies, but even that public register, um, which is a post notification, so you get put on a public register um, of, of media ownership at 2.5%. Um, there's some detailed guidance on it, but even in that, one of the concepts is fractional tracing. So, um, so sometimes there are rules. Sometimes the rules are very convoluted and uh, and complex. But sometimes there are no rules whatsoever. And um, and you may find that you can find things in aggregation. It may be that you know the definition of foreign investor itself might lend you some information on aggregation. 
but they just might not address these points at all. Um, and, and, and also in terms of you know, what I was just saying about how Austria doesn't necessarily set out the constituent parts of the formula. So you're talking about you know, your numerator and your denominator here. Um, and so you might look to what is implicated in the sense that, you know, it's, it's clearly that it's voting rights and be able to make some judgment on the um, on, on what might be implicated in the numerator. But often this is an interpretation and a kind of cautious analysis that might have to be imposed upon um, upon the rules that isn't set out in the legislation itself. And what we found when we've asked, um, you know, council in a couple of places about, you know, what's going, what about the denominator, is that actually the rules remain completely silent to that. Um, so it's actually quite difficult, you know. They're, they're, in some ways, they're quite piecemeal. They'll give you some information about calculation, not other piece, not other information. Some rules will give you quite complex um, rules, like the Australian tracing concept, and some won't give you anything at all. So it's not really, it's it's very very difficult. And and even if you, I think, said. Okay, well, let's follow substantial shareholding rules because yeah. that would be Make because that's easy, comprehensive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, because that's comprehensive. Well, in some cases, that might not necessarily work either. For example, you know, in Germany's um, banking and finance threshold, it doesn't include index and basket links, but obviously, you know, the TDA does. And so it might be that the rules don't necessarily fit together, but that at least might give you some kind of you know, sense of a, of a steer. And it's very difficult. It's difficult for people to decide how to kind of practically approach this situation when actually the legislation just doesn't really <laughs> help. Yes, that's, there's not much guidance there. Um, I, I think that that's a, another good segue into into sort of my final segment here. And that's, you know, what about non-compliance? Like, like since the rules themselves are are, you know, not disjointed, but but very difficult to sort of, you know, put on blanket. Uh, disclosure monitoring uh, points, the regulations themselves aren't very clear on, on what's included and what's not. How have you seen clients or have you seen uh, it just in the industry itself, uh, any recent fines or sanctions or is there any like public knowledge of, of what happens when clients um, sort of miss this kind of thing? Yeah, um, so not as often um, public news items, I would yeah. say. I mean, if you think, one thing that was in the public news that um, was uh, and actually was fairly recently was um, Germany because Germany was concerned with um, uh, Chinese influences in um, under its national security rules um, and so actually it was only in 2018 that um, the German regulators stopped the state grid of China from uh, acquiring a, a 20 percent um, stake in one of high voltage transmission systems and they justified it on the decisions of ground uh, justified it on the um, grounds of national security it was basically kind of a block on the transaction so sometimes you can see that these things do kind of hit the news but not always it's not always the case that they do hit the news um, and actually you know what kind of happens um, might take place behind the scenes, it might not be publicly known, um, but it doesn't mean that there is no effect to these rules. Um, for, in quite a few of them, whether or not they're FDI or whether or not they're industry specific rules, quite a few of the, the um, rules actually end up and manifest in quite serious consequences and can, um, can impose criminal penalties on um, on entities who don't you know, make appropriate notifications and that kind of thing. 
the, the new UK um, Act um, on National Security and Investment, that's not coming until the end of, uh, of this year. Yep. But basically, you know, they said if you don't notify an acquisition um, and it completes without having been cleared under the the screening process then um, it's void under English law and it might lead to civil fines and criminal um, sanctions and so you know it might be the transactions are unwound it might be that actually you're implicated in fines um, so we don't necessarily see these things as often as we might see other um, items coming up in the news but it doesn't mean that you don't pay attention to what the implications of the sanctions sure. are and quite often these things can result in um, in in um, criminal penalties so fines huge fines anyway but also criminal penalties and Austria is another thing that springs to mind so um, uh, in banking and finance if you um, had failed to notify there would be the result would be a public um, uh, sorry a suspension of your voting rights but if you failed to notify under its public policy which is basically the FDI set of regimes it can result in prisons or fines and actually you know your intention goes towards how severe those things are so whether or not your um, your breach is negligent versus intentional will impose higher fines and longer and or longer prison sentences upon you um, you know um, so it may be that the consequence of these things could be, you know, practically really tough to bear in the sense that you have um, suspended voting rights. But there may also be these, these wider implications and very serious implications of criminal penalties um, and, and fines that go with them. So whilst it's not an area that often kind of hits the news unless it's a really big deal, you know, like the German, um, the, the German news was, um, so unless they, you know they're like the size of the deal is, is really quite massive and, and there are consequences that come from it, it it might not be something that you necessarily see sanctions as clearly in the news but it, it doesn't mean that you don't have to look at what the sanctions could be and they're quite serious i mean they're the criminal penalties and yeah fines, and I, I, mean. I think that the two sort of the irony here is that you know the regulations aren't as as clear and yeah. the, the penalties are higher um i also think you know you know, you might see a lot of clients or I see a lot of clients that that might think like, well, you know, those are cases of like actual fraud or like intentionally get, mm -hmm. getting around the rules. But I think like even just the the headache of having to deal with an inquiry where you're not monitoring or if there is a gray area over the industry or the the, the calculation you took, um, it's probably not worth the trouble if you are just sort of a passive investor or just acquiring mm -hmm. securities in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know that it's it's quite a difficult it's quite a difficult thing for people, especially when you're talking about something like passive investment. And we'll, we can talk again about you know yeah. Japan as an outlier, right? Because it was you know, probably one of the only FDI regimes that's really kind of dealt with that um, up front. Um, but it is really difficult. And you know, from the sense of the, the rules, the rules are quite uh, quite broad brush. Um, you don't have necessarily any kind of list of, uh, of implicated issuers, unlike, for example, you know, substantial shareholding. If you're talking about people listed on a market, that might be a fairly uh, easy grab, um, but not necessarily for FDI. And you know, there are serious sanctions that come as a result of it. And you, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a huge headache for people, and, and that's why, you know, we when when we kind of hear feedback about things and it's just as you said earlier maybe what people really want to do is try to take a conservative approach and just stay away from these yeah. things entirely yeah, not get close um, to you know yeah exactly or, or, or just stay away from you know maybe just stay away from the thresholds um you know um or, or stay away entirely if they become too much of a headache um 
but you know they they are complex they're incredibly complex rules and they they're, they're not they don't have a great deal of um, legal structure in some places for you to be able to make these kind of calculation points and um, and and that sometimes they're completely overlayered so it's really important I think for investors to to kind of think actually we need to look um, we need to look at a country we need to think about all of these ways that these different regimes apply together um, we need to not think that by by making a submission under one set of rules we've complied with all of the other rules because that's not how it works they're different rules we need to get to know all of them um, we need to think about the different defini definitions and the different implications that might come with those things and you know it's it's in in one sense you say sensitive industries and it sounds like it's just one topic area but actually yeah, it's, it's not it's... <laughs> It's um, and I think we we touched on the beginning. It's it's so much more and and a lot more complicated than I think uh, you know investors yeah, think. Absolutely. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Um, I think uh, you know we we covered a lot in there and and we could go on for for a while, but I think yes, we we we've, <laughs> we've, we've uh, sort of uh, broached it as as generically as we could there. Um, so thank you very much, Rebecca, for joining me. Um, and. Thank you for tuning in to Late Night Disclosure, a FundApps podcast series. If you have any questions or like to know how FundApps can help, please tweet us at FundApps or visit FundApps.co to get in touch.